This is KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. Listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula. You're tuned into the Kenai Conversation. I'm Riley Board. Today, our guest is Sonia Kumar, a University of Alaska Fairbanks student who studies the endangered Cook Inlet beluga whale population. We're talking about her background in wild animal pathology, the nature of her research, and the auditory world of Cook Inlet belugas. Stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Can we just start by having you introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. Hi, I'm Sonia Kumar. Um, I'm a graduate student at the University of Alaska Fairbanks studying Cook Inlet Blues. And before we dive deeper into your background and, and how you ended up here, can you give us a super broad overview of your research on Cook Inlet Belugas? Sure. Yeah. Um, so Cook Inlet belugas are an endangered population of belugas that live in Cook Inlet. Um, and my research is on how anthropogenic noise and activity might be affecting their distribution in key foraging habitat, specifically uh, the Kenai and Kasilaf rivers. And I'll use a little bit of linguistics knowledge and assume anthropogenic is human-generated noise? Yes, sorry. Yeah, anthropogenic <laughs> means um, caused by humans. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, that seems super interesting. And and let's just back up and, and learn a little bit about how you ended up there. How did you become interested in this subject in the first place? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so before I started grad school, I actually was working in Anchorage as a veterinary as um, I was working for a veterinary pathologist as a necropsy technician. So essentially, this woman, her name is Dr. Kathy Bira Huntington. Uh, she runs the Alaska Veterinary Pathology Services, or ABPS, and she gets contracted by different agencies around the state to go and essentially figure out why wild animals have died. Um, so, with through my work with Kathy, I was able to go all over the state. Um, we were called in to do, you know, anything from like a humpback whale necropsy to like doing uh, brown bear cub or something like that. And essentially a necropsy is an autopsy of a wild animal. Um, and it's really good to have an understanding of why animals are dying, just to get an understanding of the health of the ecosystem. Um, and if there are any, you know, diseases that might be prevalent in a certain population or, you know, like for marine mammals, like carpal algal blooms is a really uh, hot topic um, for different coastal marine species that, you know, humans rely on for subsistence purposes. So. Through my work with Kathy, I learned a lot about Cook Inlet belugas. Um, she kind of called August and September beluga season because so many belugas, uh, that was kind of the time when we would do a lot of beluga necropsies. Um, I'm actually still on their mailing list and it just seems like they have a lot of uh, belugas that have been showing up. And it's really important to do necropsies on an endangered population because we want to figure out why that population hasn't been rebounding. Um, 
Their numbers currently are, um, their last population estimate came out earlier this year, which estimated about 331 individuals. Um, and historically, their numbers have been estimated to be about 1,200. So their population has declined quite a bit, um, and it really hasn't done much recovering in the last 30 odd years. So there's been a lot of research as to why that might be. Um, and so when I was working for Kathy, I got to meet a bunch of different people uh, studying belugas. And when I was finally ready to go to grad school, um, I was speaking with Brina Gill, who works for the National Marine Fishery Service in Anchorage. And we sort of discussed different options that I could that I could pursue. And I really liked the idea of doing acoustic work on the Kenai Peninsula. Huh. How how many Cook Inlet beluga necropsies ha happen in a given year? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, and it's been like four or five years since I've done that work, so I really can't speak to that. Sorry. No, that's okay. I just, you know, based on, and I, and I knew those, you know, population numbers were low, so I was just surprised to hear that how many are, are dying in a year and, and sort of coming under that purview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. Um, I think a lot of it, also has to do with maybe like the tides in Cook Inlet that time of year. I'm not totally sure. Like people might be spotting belugas more during that time of year uh, for various environmental reasons. I'm not sure. I think also maybe just because there are more people out kind of during that time of year. So if there is a beluga that has stranded, it's a bit easier to see it. Um, and there might be less like boat traffic on the water. The summertime is also kind of when they have these like target areas that they like to go to. Um, whereas in the winter, they definitely are a bit more spread out. And there definitely are areas within Cook Inlet that do get more strandings, again, kind of based on like the, like the bathymetry of Cook Inlet and how like the tide sort of um, kind of can congregate uh, can congregate, you know, whether it's like marine debris or marine mammals um, on certain areas of the coastline. Working as a necropsy technician doesn't strike me as the most traditional career path. I'm curious how how you ended up <laughs> there, if that was a, a lifelong interest or yeah, how, how did you end up working in that field? Um, that's a really funny question. Yeah, I actually, from like a young age, I really liked animals and um, I actually was, I'm, I'm Indian and I was raised to be a vegetarian, so I never like really interacted with meat on any level. Um, but when I was a sophomore in high school, our high school teachers encouraged us to do this thing called sophomore shadow day, where you could reach out to somebody um, like a professional and you shadow them for a day. I decided to shadow my dog's vet. And ironically, I could not handle it. Like they were doing eye surgeries on a dog that day and I just had to sit in the lobby because I was so nauseous. So I really thought that my dream of like being a vet and working with animals was shot because I couldn't even watch an eye surgery. So I kind of put that on the back burner for a while. Um, but then uh, I graduated from NYU with a degree in environmental studies and a minor in psychology. And uh, I had studied abroad in Australia doing a rainforest conservation program during my junior year. And that's sort of when I realized that the field of wildlife biology was something that allows me to work with animals and not necessarily have to deal with uh, doing surgeries on them. So I worked as a biological technician for quite a few years before starting work with Kathy. And I was actually working for the Forest Service in Girdwood uh, that summer, is the summer of 2017. It was my second summer with them. Um, and 
there is there is an event called Beluga's Count every September where it's a it's a community science program and basically they have different people stationed along different parts of uh, Cook Inlet and Turnigan Arm to essentially count belugas and to get the general public excited about belugas. And there's often an event at the zoo afterwards where there's guest speakers and um, different uh, booths and stuff. Um, and I actually met one of my one of my wonderful mentors now, Barbara Mahoney, we were chatting at 20 Mile and I was sort of lamenting how I didn't have winter work yet and I really wanted to stay in Alaska um, and not just sort of keep doing the seasonal thing. And she mentioned that uh, Kathy was looking for a technician. And so I was like, okay, I mean, I, I had done some decropsies for previous jobs before and it, it wasn't as bad as, you know, that first experience at the vet's office when I was, I don't know, 15 years old. Um, so Kathy actually, during our interview, she had me meet her at the Merrill airfield and we picked up a dead porpoise and took it to a warehouse freezer. And I think she was like, wow, that's cool. She's like, totally okay. Picking up porpoise. <laughs> um, so she hired me and, um, it was definitely, you know, not something that I was like, wow, yeah, dead animals. But I think the best part about it is that I, I really, I did really enjoy that work. It was super cool. To me, once you get into an animal's gut, it's it's not really like, oh my gosh, this is like a dead animal. It's like, wow, this is like science. We're like looking for, you know, abnormalities on different organs and we're looking for signs of human interaction, trying to figure out, you know, what could have happened to this animal. And I, I got to fly all over the state, which was really cool. I went um, to Western Alaska. I went up to Kotzebue and down to Southeast Alaska. And it was just such a cool job. And I really grew my professional network um, in that capacity as well. So no, it wasn't necessarily a lifelong dream, but I'm definitely glad that I had that experience. Wow. Interesting. Did, yeah. Did you end up finding that, that it was easier to work on dead animals than, than living animals in terms of those, those hesitations you had the first time you saw surgery on an animal? Yeah, probably. Um, Cause we actually, we did do um, every once in a while we would do like a domestic pet. I think maybe only once actually. And yeah, we did a necropsy on a cat and that did kind of freak me out a little bit because it was super fresh. Like it still had its collar on. The smell was like very, very different. Like it was, yeah, that oddly enough, like that was the worst necropsy to me that I had ever helped with. Huh. Well, do you have a most memorable necropsy that you worked on? Oh yeah, I do. Um, so the summer before I moved to Juneau, it was the summer of, uh, 2019. Um, I don't know if you were living in Alaska at that point, but there was a humpback whale, a subadult humpback whale that sort of got trapped in turning an arm. And it was a really big deal. There were, uh, like a lot of people out there and, um, the humpback whale ended up getting stranded on the shore, kind of like right before the, like, welcome to the Chukach National Forest sign, one of those many signs. But um, yeah, it got stranded there. And um, Kathy and I actually got called out, you know, just in case the whale died. And so we were there with a team of NOAA people. Um, the Girdwood Fire Department was also there, and they were just like dumping buckets and buckets of water on this humpback whale. And it was a really powerful experience for me because I had never been that close to a, a whale, like an alive whale like that before. And it was 
it was very sad because you know it was it was stranded but you could see its eye just kind of like roaming around looking at all of us and I can't even imagine what was going on in its head um but Kathy and I actually collected blow samples from it so we held these petri dishes over its blowhole to basically collect its snot and that was that was pretty cool the Girdwood Fire Department when the tide came up the Girdwood Fire Department was able to kind of like get the whale moving a bit and we all sort of thought it would swim out of Turnigan Arm, but unfortunately it died overnight and it restranded. So the next day, Kathy and I went out to it and it was, and Kathy's been doing this work for a long time. And she said it was the freshest large whale that she's ever done a necropsy on. And it was a really cool effort because there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of people that were like on the highway and there were quite a lot of Alaska native people that were coming and getting um, muck tuck from it, which I thought was super cool. And at one point we were just kind of like, you know, you, you kind of have to just like crank through it when you have a large whale like that. Like it's, it's so big and it takes so long to do that necropsy. Um, and it was actually on its stomach, which isn't the best position for it to be on <laughs> because you want to get into the guts and removing a vertebra is like very challenging. Um, so at one point we were like, I don't know, it, it was kind of funny. There was like some people that were spectating and this guy was just sort of standing there and I just started recruiting people to like come down and um, like sharpen knives or, you know, like label bags for us. Like it was, it was definitely a community effort. And this guy, we call him Flip-Flop Joe because he was just in flip-flops sharpening knives for us on the side of the highway. It was really great. And um, it was a very cool experience. And, you know, I, I definitely cried that night though about it. And I, I wrote a little piece for the Stranding Network newsletter because yeah, I've never met an animal that, you know, died the next day. That was pretty wild for me. Um, but I think the best part of that experience is that we had some folks, uh, some Alaska native folks come down and do a little ceremony for the whale. And on the third day, so this necropsy took three days, like three very long days. Um, and on the third day, there is this man that showed up. Um, his name was Isaiah. I can't remember his last name right now, but he wanted to make a drum out of the liver of the humpback. And we were like, yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, so he, he really like worked super hard that day and we got the liver out and he took the, um, liver home with it or like the lining of the liver home with him to make this drum. And I think it's really interesting. A few, I think a few months later or like yeah maybe a few months later um i was up in kotzebue for work and isaiah was there and he had i i bought a pair of coyote teeth bearings from him and um he actually had made that drum and he showed it to me and played it for me and it was really really cool it was definitely like a full circle moment um yeah so that's definitely the most memorable necropsy i would say wow how often do those like cultural practices end up a part of necropsies. I mean, obviously this was like a unique scenario where it was a really large animal in a very like public place, but does that end up a part of that work often or was this a, a rare scenario? I'm trying to think. I, I, I want to say that it's a pretty rare scenario because oftentimes, you know, when we do have a stranded animal, we don't know why it died. Um, and if that reason is like some sort of disease or a parasite, uh, it's not good for people to eat. So I think because that whale had stranded and we knew that it died because it stranded, it was 
okay for people to harvest from that animal, especially because it was so fresh. I mean, there's often times where like, we'll get a call about something, but you know, by the time we're like able to take a helicopter out or like, you know, there's a weather window, the, the animal is pretty rotten at that point. Um, that being said, we did respond to a UME, which stands for an unusual mortality event um, up in Kotzebue and in Kotlik, I believe, where we basically just kind of trolled the coast for stranded seals because there were so many dead seals that were washing up. So while the, um, like, it wasn't necessarily like the cultural practices weren't necessarily involved. Like one of the reasons we were out there is because those animals are so important for subsistence purposes that like, it's really important to get that information of like why these animals are dying um, when communities up north, like really, you know, rely heavily on that for their well-being and their, yeah, their well-being and their um, food. Yeah. So I'm assuming that most necropsies take place in a facility, but then for larger animals or certain situations, you'll do them outside. Is that is that true? Um, yes. Uh, do more do more question. happen outside than I'm than I'm imagining. Yeah, because um, sometimes it it can be really hard to transport an animal to the lab. So we when I was working for Kathy, and she still she has this she has a lab space at UAA. Um, it's a it's not like the biggest lab, but it's not the smallest lab. You know, it, it kind of can probably fit like a five or six foot animal on it. And I might be overestimating it as well. But, you know, if we were lucky, like people might ship us a seal. Um, one time somebody like shipped us a moose head. Um, but transporting these animals that can be a couple hundred to a thousand pounds, it's it's not super easy. So if we can get out to them, we, we try to. Um, when I, I, I speak like I'm still doing it, I'm not. But at, during my experience, it was definitely better to kind of like go do a field necropsy, even though, you know, it's not going to be as thorough. It's certainly not as sterile as if we were in a lab. Um, but it, uh, yeah, it was, that's kind of like one of the challenges of working in Alaska is that we don't have all of the resources that places like California or Washington um, might have. Like, I, I think, yeah, I remember, I don't know the details, but I definitely remember reading about some strandings in California and just being wildly jealous of the facilities they have there and like the resources, like they can drive down to the beach and like, you know, load up the back of a truck with like a dolphin or something and take it to a lab, but we can't really do that. <laughs> You're listening to The Kenai Conversation, where we're talking to Cook Inlet Beluga researcher Sonia Kumar who worked for a couple years as a necropsy technician out of Anchorage. Stay with us. What drew you to Alaska in the first place? I think you mentioned you went to NYU for undergrad. Mm -hmm. What what pulled you out here? Did you have family or some previous connection in the area, or were you just interested in, in <laughs> heading west? I hate to say this, but I was actually... Um, dating a man <laughs> in college whose sister went to APU. So we were both looking at jobs out here after graduation. And and I got an internship with the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge. And then I was like, wow, this is way better than Manhattan. So I'm just going to keep trying to work up here. <laughs> I, I assume your 
job in Alaska out outlasted the relationship? It did. Yes, it did. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're still I think here. most people that come up here for work, their their uh, jobs usually outlast their relationship. Uh, but yeah, I, I I really love it up here. I mean, Kodiak. I we were doing um, we were surveying for Kitlitz's Merlets, which is a rare seabird out in the backcountry of Kodiak, um, and it was four of us and. We were flown out there in a in a helicopter and we were out in the bush for two months and it was like a stark change from being around you know people all the time in manhattan and then just being out in the backcountry of kodiak like it was super hard it was probably the hardest job i've ever had just in terms of you know not feeling strong enough i was definitely the the slowest person on our crew and it was my first season doing such intense like backcountry field work like that but it really changed my life and the crew was amazing and um I just yeah like I just wanted to keep working up here and keep finding ways to be outside and learn about this beautiful place did you did you always plan on going to graduate school and and turning to doing your own research or were or you know when did when did you make that decision um well so again i'm indian um my parents like my sister and i are first generation here my parents immigrated here when they were in their 20s it's very important to them like higher education is very important to them um so i think i always knew that i was going to go to grad school i just didn't really ever envision what that looked like because it was just sort of something that i i knew would happen um it took me a while to start grad school it took me i think seven or eight years between undergrad and graduate school um, so they weren't like super stoked about that, but I think we're, we're doing okay now, <laughs> now that I'm along my journey. And then, yeah. And then turning to that work, you know, you, you explained that working in necropsies brought you awareness of the cook and beluga population. How did, how did sound become the focus of your research? Um, that's a good question. So one of my mentors, when, when I used to work for Kathy, it's this woman named Barbara Mahoney, I adore her. She she lives in Anchorage and still works for NOAA. Um, she actually told me that I should look into acoustics because it is an up and coming field. There's a lot of different applications for it. And just talking to her about that, it just, it did seem like, okay, yeah. I mean, if I wanted to, you know, sort of not always do marine mammal stuff, like acoustics is applicable in a lot of different other ways. Um, and actually, when I was working for the Dugach National Forest, I was doing bat acoustic work too. So I, I had a little bit of experience uh, doing that kind of stuff. Um, and also, I'm a musician, and I really like the idea of eavesdropping on marine mammals and learning about that aspect of their environment. And sort of, it just, it kind of ties together nicely in my brain. Um, it's really hard, though. I, I definitely... I also would say that my research is definitely less acoustics than I make it sound. I mean, I, I had hydrophones in the river, but to me, it was more of the like um, the disturbance component that I'm looking at and like less of the like physical aspect of sound traveling through the ocean and, and the rivers. Sure. So that's that's disturbances, any any sort of human related disturbance that would affect the beluga's and not and not studying like this specific sound itself and its effect on that population. Yes, sort of. I mean, let me give you a 
a little extra information about my project. Please. <clears throat> so in 2021 and 2022, um, I had two different types of passive acoustic monitoring devices in the Kenai and Kasilaf rivers. I also want to note that I was supposed to start my research in 2020, but we all know what happened then. So my research was delayed a year. Um, but yeah, so I had two different types of passive acoustic monitoring devices in the rivers. One was called a sound trap, and that recorded kind of the overall ambient noise of the river, whether that was like, yeah, boats in the river, um, or, you know, if there was like a really crazy, like, windstorm that was kind of like churning up things like it, it basically just kind of recorded the soundscape um, up to a certain frequency. Um, and then my other instruments were called F pods, which recorded the higher frequency beluga echolocation. And so I had multiple F pods in each river, but only one sound trap. So essentially, I was recording the acoustic presence of beluga whales in the river and looking at what times of the year during the ice-free season they were in the rivers. And then for my sound trap um, device, I basically, when I was analyzing my data, um, I would look at it, I looked at it in this program called Raven, and I looked at 30-minute chunks of time every hour. And I basically looked at the spectrogram on, on Raven and uh, categorized it into one of three sound categories that I sort of developed um, for myself. And I categorized it as like low, medium, or high noise based on a visual inspection of the spectrogram. So I would essentially, I, I'm essentially looking at when belugas are present in the river and I'm comparing that with my sound level. Does that make sense? I think so. And okay. what what is it that you're looking for? So I'm basically looking to see if belugas are in the river when there are when there is a lower sound level, basically. So I'm basically using sound as a as a metric for like so belugas really rely heavily on sound for communication and for navigating. Um, so in a very noisy environment, it's hard for them to do those things. So it might not be as easy for them to find and track prey or to like talk with conspecifics or communicate with conspecifics. Um, so that means that they're often less like, it, it, it's less likely that they'll be using areas that have a lot of noise. And the Kenai River is a very important area for humans and for belugas. Um, you know, we all know that there's like a world famous fish run. So belugas historically have used the Kenai River all summer long. Um, traditional knowledge shows that. Um, however, in more recent years, belugas have truncated their presence in the Kenai and are more likely to be there in the spring and in the fall and far less likely to be there in the summertime. And so um, it's, I'm kind of looking at how sound might be coming into play during that time frame. Um, and unfortunately, I had a lot of technological difficulties where I had uh, recorders fail or I've lost data. So the picture that my dissertation paints isn't 
a totally complete picture um, and I'm actually still working on it. So I can't really uh, tell you exactly what my results are yet because I'm still sort of working through that. But um, I was also out there doing visual surveys on a weekly basis where I would basically go out and like count the different types of boats and also look for belugas. Um, this sort of piggybacked off of another group's visual surveys. I don't know if you are familiar with the Alaska Beluga Monitoring Partnership, but it's a part, yeah, it's a partnership developed by NOAA and they have citizen or they have community science volunteers go out and conduct visual surveys for belugas in the spring and in the fall. Um, however, people weren't doing surveys in the summertime because they're not often seen in the summertime. So I was out there uh, looking for belugas too. Um, I was also doing surveys to sort of validate my acoustic data. So when I'm categorizing something in the like high noise category, I can sort of say, okay, yeah, on that day during that time frame, I saw, you know, X amount of boats. And, um, you know, that kind of gives me an idea of like what, what could be making those high levels of noise. Mm. Do, do different types of disturbances affect belugas in different ways, like boats versus people? I guess I can't think of like another, like, you know, noises of like other vehicles nearby or um I guess I guess boats are kind of the primary one I can think of what am I what am I not thinking of in terms of what would disturb belugas so that's a really good question and I think that's something that people do kind of want to tease apart um and one of my uh mentors and committee members Dr. Manolo Castellote he's done a lot of acoustic work in other parts of Cook Inlet on Cook Inlet beluga whales and um some other things that could disturb them potentially are like low flying airplanes. And there are, you know, in Cook Inlet, especially on like a sunny day, there are a ton of airplanes out. And um, if you're familiar with the Kenai, which I assume you are, uh, you know, there's the War Names Bridge and belugas often swim under the War Names Bridge as they're going further upriver. Yes, that's and the, the only place I've successfully seen belugas. <laughs> yeah. And it's, just, it's such a cool spot to see them because they're like right there. You're so close to them. It's, it's super cool. Um, but yeah, it, it potentially they could be disturbed by car noise. Um, especially if you're thinking about like, you know, if you're driving along Jernigan arm, um, from like Anchorage to Girdwood there, the highway is like right next to Jernigan arm. And I've definitely seen belugas from my car too. So it's, it's kind of interesting because, it is a little tricky to tease apart different noises. However, that is one thing that um, Dr. Castellote is doing. I believe you can sort of tell, a, you can train a program to identify different types of boats or other noises. Um, unfortunately, that's a bit out of the scope of my project. Yeah, gotcha. So, so your research is more focused on whether the overall level of noise at a given time affects how many belugas are, are in the river at that time? Yeah. Um, and not necessarily how many, because uh, mm. the the way that I'm looking at my FPOD data, um, I can't tell how many there are. I can just say sort of, yes, there were belugas in the river at that time, or no, there weren't. Mm. Um, but that's another really cool reason to do those visual surveys and um, like being able to compare what people have seen to the acoustic work that I'm doing. And that's something that I plan on looking at a little bit further, uh, probably early next year. And you mentioned echolocation earlier. I'm not sure I knew that belugas used echolocation. 
Yeah, belugas use echolocation. Um, they actually have a like an organ called a melon um, in like the front of their head, which they use to kind of they they like send out echolocations and then they actually receive it, receive the the bounce back through their lower jaw, like fat in their lower jaw, which is super cool. Huh. And and they use that primarily for for hunting prey or or just for getting around? Uh, for both. Yeah. So they use it for hunting prey. So if they like, you know, they echolocate and they're like, oh, yeah, there's a fish there. Then they can kind of like sort of fine tune that echolocation. Um, and as they get closer, the echolocations click sort of start speeding up. Um, and they also use it, yeah, to get an idea of what their what the environment that they're navigating in, um, which, again, is is important in the Kenai because it's not I mean, it's not the widest river, but it's also like not that narrow because it is glacially fed there's a lot of sediment buildup in different places so it's important for them to be able to sort of like see like oh yeah there's like a like a little mini underwater hill that i need to avoid um and sort of navigate around that you know if they're like going under the warren Ames bridge like you know echolocate so they don't hit the pole and echolocation is really important for cooking like blue in particular because the water is so murky like it's so so murky there you can can't really see very well in it um so that's another reason why noise masking can be really problematic for cooking the belugas whereas if you like go to canada or something or even further up north the waters are a lot clearer and it's definitely easier to see in that type of uh aquatic environment than it is in cook inlet and do belugas use sound to communicate with each other they do. So they have, um, belugas have a variety of sounds that they use. So they have like higher frequency um, echolocation clicks, but they also have like um, other clicks and whistles that they use to communicate with each other. And, you know, if I had time in my research, it would be really cool to kind of go through some of that sound data to look for those beluga, other beluga sounds. Um, there are definitely people looking at that kind of work. Um, Ariel Brewer, who is a grad student at the University of Washington, is one person that's looking at different types of beluga echolocations. Uh, sorry, beluga vocalizations. Um, it's really super cool work, but again, it's kind of like using a different software and looking at different aspects of the acoustic data that I'm not looking at. And I think that's one. That's another really cool thing about um, my data set is I have, I I have just a ton of data for other people to look at eventually when I'm done with my research. And there's so many different questions that you can ask um, using this data, which I think is really wonderful. Hmm. Well, well, let me ask one of them. Um, you, you know, you mentioned that belugas use echolocation to navigate the murkiness of the Kenai River. Overall, why are sound disturbances a, a problem for cook inlet belugas? And, and is it more so than, than other species? Well, there has just been such an increase of anthropogenic activity in Cook Inlet um, over the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. And also, you know, specifically in the Kenai River, there's, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot going on. Um, you know, you have the commercial fishing boats in the rivers, but you also have the diff netters in there. And, if you think about being a beluga, like that's not necessarily the type of environment that would feel safe to be in if you're just sort of having to navigate around all of these boats and you know you might not be able to hear very well. 
So just in general, Cook Inlet has become a noisier place. And as you know, kind of compared to other regions, I'm not super familiar with how um, like anthropogenic activity has increased or in other parts of Alaska, but sort of just thinking about improved technology and also just the abundance of people we have in the world now compared to 30 years ago, I, I can sort of speculate that there's probably other, you know, noise challenges that other belugas up north face as well, but maybe not to the same extent because their habitat is kind of, is quite a bit different than the sort of confining habitat of Cook Inlet. Yeah, do do Cook Inlet belugas live in an overall smaller habitat than other beluga populations? They do. Um, I'm actually like looking at a map right now. And the thing about Cook Inlet belugas is that they are, so there's, um, there are five genetic, like recognized genetically distinct populations of belugas within Alaska. Um, I believe actually the Kotzebue Sound population is now its own genetically has has been determined to be genetically distinct as well um yeah so if you think about alaska and you think about cook inlet where it is within alaska cook inlet belugas are sort of they're they're pretty isolated from other populations so you have the illusions that are kind of in the way of them um if they wanted to like go up north they're sort of kind of stuck in cook inlet whereas other populations of belugas like the Chukchi and the Beaufort stock, like they have a much bigger range and actually their range can kind of overlap in certain areas too. Um, but the Cook Inlet Belugas, they're just, they're just sort of there and they can't really go anywhere else. So if the population does go extinct, then it's highly unlikely that another population of Belugas will come and sort of repopulate that area. Um, I say that, but the last couple of years there have been sightings of belugas in like California. So um, I don't really know. It's, you know, climate change is doing some really wild things to our oceans and um, animals are sort of ending up in places where you don't necessarily expect to see them. Um, so who knows, who knows what will happen. Uh, that being said, I think the beluga in California was actually from like the Beaufort sea population, I think. Um, it, it wasn't the Cook Inlet population though. So yeah, like, I, I don't know how it ended up there. And I think there was like a couple of instances in the last couple of years where belugas were seen down South and people are like, what is going on? <laughs> huh? <laughs> well, as you mentioned earlier, you know, Cook Inlet belugas are really small and population was, was 330 the number that you said is the latest? Um, 331, 331, but 331. I mean, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's an estimate and there's um it there's a range. I don't know the range off the top of my head right now, but they actually so the National Marine Fishery Service, they do aerial surveys um, every two years to estimate the population of Cook Inlet belugas and the twenty there the it had been I think four years since the last population estimate, um, you know, a large part due to the restrictions during the pandemic. But the previous estimate, which I think came out in 2019, was 279. So actually, there is an estimated slight increase, which is um, honestly awesome news, which I'm taking with a grain of salt because, you know, there's a lot of like, there can be a lot of error with aerial surveys. Um, and again, like the range is, is kind of, is pretty big. So 
it is the first population increase in quite a while. So I think we're all kind of hopeful about that. So um, we'll have to wait a couple of years to see if if it keeps increasing or if it's sort of still is stagnant or even starts decreasing. But it is definitely a good sign that the population supposedly has increased since the last estimate four years ago. If you're just joining us, we're talking to graduate student Sonia Kumar, who studies cook and lit belugas using sound. This is the Kenai Conversation. What are the things that you're still exploring in the in the remaining parts of your research? So I, I still sort of need to compare the visual observations with my um, acoustic detections, but in 2022, I actually started a new component of my research um, using eDNA, which stands for environmental DNA. And essentially, environmental DNA is using um, like little footprints left behind by different animals in the water. So I collected weekly water samples um, with Yvonne Weber, who was working for the Salamantoff tribe at that time, um, and Sierra Bismarck, who was her intern. And we went out and collected three water samples at the Kenai River and three water samples at the Kasilaf River every week for five or six months. Um, and essentially, I was I want to look at how fish assemblages are changing throughout the year. And I want to compare that with when belugas are present in the river. So this is an extension of work that is being done by um, Dr. Debbie Tobin down in Homer with the Ketchumik Bay campus. Uh, she has been collecting monthly water samples with her students uh, for the last um, maybe year and a half, two years, which I think is really, really cool. Um, my work was looking at the fish assemblages on a finer scale. So looking at a weekly, on a weekly basis instead of on a monthly basis. Um, and essentially, if you look at data from ADF and G, they have weirs in both of the rivers and they do fish counts of um, sockeye, salmon, and, and how their numbers change throughout the season. And the numbers of sockeye salmon are pretty low by the time belugas start re-entering the river. So that kind of begs the question, what species are they chasing? Um, and I know if you talk to different fishermen in the rivers, they'll give you all sorts of wonderful answers. Um, but I kind of wanted to look at it on a more like like on a, on a genetics basis. So I am currently working at the NOAA lab here in Juneau um, with uh, Dr. Kim Ledger. And she and I have been processing my eDNA samples. And I actually just finished up the library prep component of it last week or two weeks ago, which was really exciting because it's, uh, it's not the most interesting lab work. You're kind of just doing a lot of pipetting. Um, but the next step is the bioinformatics portion of it, uh, where I'll basically be able to to look at finally look at, you know, what species, you know, have been in the river at different times of the year. And I'm going to compare some of that data with the um, counts at the weir, which I'm yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. I still don't know a ton of a ton about eDNA. I'm definitely still learning about it, but it's a really cool component to my project as well and um, kind of answers a little bit more questions of like maybe, you know, belugas are sort of avoiding avoiding 
periods of time when it's really noisy in the river, but they also could be targeting different fish species, fish species which we might not be super aware of yet. And I will say like that is one thing that necropsies are really helpful for too, is if you, if you have a dead beluga, um, but their stomach is full of fish, like it's a really good way to like help us learn like what is in their diet. However, getting other diet samples isn't as easy. I mean, people do go out, like you can go out and collect fecal samples, but I actually don't know if anybody's doing that for cooking lit belugas. There's definitely a lot of um, permits involved in doing research like that with belugas because they are an endangered species. And that's another reason doing passive acoustic monitoring is really cool because it's, it is a passive way to, to study these animals as opposed to like, you know, actively having to capture them or like tag them or anything like that. Um, and as much as I love, you know, messing with wild animals, it's definitely better for them if you don't. So that's a, that's another cool benefit of doing passive acoustic monitoring. But um, yeah, I am really excited to see what my eDNA results pull up, um, especially because, I mean, sometimes, you know, grad students might collect these samples, but then send it off to a lab. But I've, I've pretty much been involved in like every component of it. So it's, uh, it's, it's exciting. <laughs> I hope it actually shows something. I'm, I'm definitely worried that like, you know, it's going to say like, oh yeah, there's just like dog hair in all of your samples. <laughs> I have a dog. Um, and it's just, you know, dog, but, um, uh, that's not really how eDNA works. You can, you actually have specific primers for, um, different species that you, that you want to look at. So, so far my results show that I have a lot of DNA. I don't know what it is yet. I'm hoping it's something good. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm noticing that in both of those approaches, like you mentioned with the acoustic monitoring and with the eDNA, you know, both of them are sort of working around the belugas like you know looking at aspects of their environment but without ever like touching the belugas themselves was that you know going in was that something that you wanted to like work into the project in a specific way or is that just sort of how it shook out um that is kind of how it shook out I mean I definitely am envious of some students who do get to go and like physically work with their study species. Um, but that's also just like a, I don't know, I spent a lot of years doing bird work before getting into marine mammal stuff. And that is a lot of like, yeah, you get to handle species and like, you know, take morphometrics of cute baby birds, um, which is really fun. And I love interacting with animals. And it would be cool to be able to do something like that with belugas. But I do know that the list of people who want to get their hands on a beluga is pretty long. Um, so I guess it's cool that I'm able to study them um, in whatever capacity that I have been able to, you know, uh, I, I would like to sort of, well, I don't know, we'll see what happens after I graduate. I think it would be cool to be able to do some more like hands-on research as opposed to, um, you know, just sort of passively research animals, but I also... I also do think that, you know, animals get, can get really stressed out if you are like constantly trying to capture them and tag them and stuff, but there's benefits for both types of research. You know, they, they kind of answer different questions. Yeah. Well, and that leads me to what was going to be my next question, which is after you're, you're finished with this research, what are you interested in doing next? Are you planning to stick with the, the cook and let belugas or, or move on to a different species? That is a good question. Um, I... I have actually been uh, doing some 
side hustle in the last year. Um, I was doing some contract work for the Stranding Network. And then I also was working with uh, Sea Alaska Heritage Institute this past summer. Um, and I was helping them with their culture camp. Um, basically, they sent me to different rural communities in Southeast Alaska, and we worked with hunters and teachers and taught students how, like the importance, the cultural importance of um, harbor seals and how they can be uh, harvested and utilized. And then I taught students how to do necropsies on these seals and how to collect biological samples for them from them um, and the importance of, of doing that and what it can tell us. And I actually have found that I really enjoy working in rural communities and um, the more, the longer that I live in Alaska, the more, I just, I think it's really important to work within communities to see like, you know, how research can not only benefit like animals, but how it can benefit like people living in those communities, you know, instead of like sort of coming into a place and like doing research and then leaving and not really involving people that live there year round. So I actually want to kind of pursue, maybe I, I have my own consulting company, so maybe trying to build that up a bit and and seeing what kind of work I can do with my skills that I, I can utilize to, to work with people in communities and see, you know, what some of their needs might be in terms of um, learning about the health of the animals that they're eating, whether it's marine mammals or terrestrial. But that's just sort of an idea that I'm going to let simmer until I graduate. <laughs> um, not to say that I don't want to work with belugas. Uh, I just, I really, it turns out I really love Southeast Alaska. I live in Juneau. <laughs> and um, I think I kind of want to make this more of a home base than South Central Alaska. And there are no belugas down here. So trying to figure out how I can be uh, an active and helpful part of this community is something that I, I want to think more about and not necessarily just research because it's something that I'm interested in, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, and I, and I totally agree with you about the, you know, wanting to not just, not just study the animals, but also the, you know, the human world around them. And, and I'm, curious while you were based in South Central, while you were, you know, studying Cook and Lip Belugas from this area, you know, how do you feel like you interacted with the the human environment around the beluga habitat? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so my first year I was there, um, I was there for six months um, in 2021 and six months in 2022. And I, I knew a couple of people before moving there, just like some other people that had been doing beluga work. And um, I, I definitely got to know more people through my research. Like I was able to work with um, different seafood companies down there and I got help with, uh, I got help from um, some folks at Packstar and some folks at OBI and uh, Copper River Seafood Company. So I'm, I'm super grateful for them. I also was able to get some help from the city of Kenai. And I, my work seriously would not have been possible without the help of all these people. A lot of people gave me boat rides to my buoys. Um, I had, basically, I had, I had buoys out in both of the rivers that moved a lot. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but there's some pretty intense uh, tides that affect 
the Kenai and Kisilaf oh, rivers. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I definitely had buoys that went rogue, and I almost lost an instrument altogether, but was able to find it thanks to some some folks that had their eyes on it for a long time, and I finally was able to track it down, which was really cool. I worked with people at the Kenai Watershed Forum, um, and I gave a couple of, I gave a fireside chat each year that I was working down there, or uh, I guess up there from here. I, I do wish I was able to engage with the community a bit more, but I, to be honest, I was a little bit hesitant because I was concerned that people might mess with the buoys. Um, I know that, you know, I, I don't know if this is a popular opinion. You know, sometimes fishermen would joke with me about this, but I was definitely kind of concerned. Like people would sort of say like, oh, the blues are eating our fish, but they, you know, I couldn't really tell if they were joking or not. So I didn't want everybody to know that I was doing that kind of work down there because I was a little bit worried. And that that could be my own general anxiety. You know, I think most, you know, 90% of the people that I spoke with were like really stoked about it. And a lot of, I would say a lot of people that utilize the river, um, a lot of the fishermen anyways, like the commercial fishermen, they kind of would see me on the docks doing my surveys and they would know like, oh yeah, the beluga girl's back. Um, and they would like, you know, if they would, if they saw my buoy go into the ocean, they might tell somebody about it who would then tell me, which was cool. Um, or, you know, people saw belugas in the river, they would, I, I would often get calls about it, which was, which was really cool. I think that was the best part about it. Like people, people got really, you know, people get really excited about seeing belugas. I just, uh, I, yeah, I just was a little bit nervous about making the work like super well known just in case somebody came in and like, you know, sabotage the buoy or whatever. Um, I had enough sabotaging with the environment itself <laughs> that I didn't really need like somebody else to do that. But I don't think anything like that happened and I probably didn't need to worry about it, but, um, it was definitely something that was on my mind. So, so every time you went out to look for the buoys, they were in slightly different locations than where you'd last left them? Sometimes. It's also, so basically the buoy was on an anchor and the anchor was attached to a, a line in a chain. Um, and also, so it sort of depended on like how low the river was. So if the river was super low and the chain and the rope were kind of like stretched out further based on, how the tide was moving it could look slightly different um that being said you know whole trees come down the river and they like will drag up my 40 pound anchors and like you know drag them into the sea um that well okay i had 15 and 20 pound anchors one buoy that kept moving i did put on a 40 pound anchor and i thought that would keep and that that was the one that i, I that got dragged out into the sea and i wasn't able to find it until like the very end of my field season um so I think that's another thing. It was it was so challenging working in those rivers. Like there were so many components to it. Um, you know, there was like obviously the human component where uh, I had a buoy out um, kind of like right in front of the Kenai City docks. And I would do my visual surveys while standing on the docks. And sometimes I would see uh, the dip netters like anchor up to my buoy and I, you know, I can't just like yell at them to get off my buoy. I don't really, again, want to bring too much attention to myself or I didn't want to. So yeah, there, uh, there was that. I had one instance, one time um, a, the current dragged one of my buoys up to the bank sort of in front of the Kenai city docks, but it was, you know, that kind of like thick mud that you really shouldn't walk 
in. So then I had to like wait for a boat ride to get to it. And again, like some of some sometimes like the river was just so low that people didn't want to take their boats out, um, which is totally understandable. So accessing my buoys wasn't always super simple. Um, I did have my sound trap uh, in the Kenai River attached to a dock piling um, that was only accessible during a negative low tide. So that's when I would check on that one. And luckily I was, you know, working with um, folks at Copper River Seafood Company and eventually um, ADF&G and they would take me to that detector. But uh, yeah, there was, there was a whole lot of challenges and I'm not gonna lie, I'm kind of glad I didn't have to do another field season because it was, it was super, super hard. I, at this point, you know, I, there's a lot of lessons learned. I kind of wish I had my own, you know, little boat that I could just go around and um, check on my instruments with, but that wasn't in the budget that I had. Uh, so I definitely relied on a lot of external help, which was, which was good. Um, and I do feel like a lot of people in the community, hopefully, you know, knew not a lot but you know some people in the community like knew about this research and i think people are also more aware about belugas because of the alaska wildlife alliance they have they put out these beluga alerts you can uh, sign up for um, beluga alert text messages and they'll text you when they see belugas in the river i've been getting a lot of those in the last month or two which is really awesome so yeah i think people are definitely learning more about belugas in the kenai which is really cool well Sonia, we're just about out of time. Um, is there anything else that we didn't get to that you wanted to mention about your research or cooking limp belugas in general? I I don't think so. I, I think we've kind of like talked about most of it. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me and, and sharing about your research and your your fascinating previous work. And yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure to talk with you, Riley. And that's all for this episode of the Kenai Conversation. Thanks to Sonia Kumar for joining us. You can hear the Kenai Conversation every week on Wednesday at 10 a.m. and Saturday at 5 p.m. here on KDLL. Or you can find it on our website, kdll.org. I'm Riley Board. Thanks for tuning in.